Today's sermon text is Ruth 1, 1 through 22. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 222. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, daughters, to, to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you, grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lift up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope. Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your... After your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. May God bless the reading of his word. Before we pray, I'll uh, just give you a little tip. If you've got the uh, ESV Bible app, um, the book of Ruth is read by Kristen Getty. Something about that accent just adds a little flavor uh, to the book. So if you want to join her in listening to the book, I would commend that. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for an opportunity uh, to open up your word and hear from you. We pray that you would lead us uh, during this time, that you would open our minds to understand, our ears to hear, our hearts to receive. And then uh, from this our whole lives to apply your word. So uh, this word is spiritually discerned. So we pray for your help and we pray for your leading through it. And we pray this in Christ's name. All right. So um, as I was studying this week, uh, I don't know why this came to mind, but it did. So I'll just be transparent. I was considering my somewhat uh, regretful reputation uh, that I have. Uh, I'm regretfully known for so many things that I don't like. Uh, things that I tend to disdain. Um, I don't think the list as as long as some of you make it out to be. It's a bit embellished, somewhat of an urban legend at this point. Uh, I think it just sort of takes on a life of its own. 
Um, even those that don't know me very well, that maybe have heard me preach uh, just a few times, know my growing, ever-growing, ever-constant disdain for Disney. Uh, it's just ever-present, which some of you uh, don't appreciate very much. Um, so that's how the narrative goes on that. Uh, there are many that mix, mischaracterize my dislike of Christmas. Um, so if you want to talk to me about that, let me know. Uh, I believe on the list uh, there's also uh, pets, even though I have one of those. Actually, two now. We have a fish, so we have two pets. Um, I'm sure some of you are thinking of other items that you would like to put on the list. Uh, you know, anything with lemon in a dessert, uh, I disdain. So you could just keep adding to that. I know my wife can name a few, so you could just find her after the service. And uh, since I don't know how to get out of my way on uh, out of my own way, sometimes I'll just add to the list. Okay, we're in February. Just want to confess to you that I I don't care for Valentine's Day. Sort of dominates the entire month. Okay, it's February. It could be known for a whole host of things. uh, Yet it's been taken over by yet another commercialized holiday that cost us a lot of money. One where the marketing geniuses have convinced us that a Unless we spend extravagantly on our loved ones, then we are loveless fools to be shunned. Either we go out or risk the blanket of guilt that will be cast upon us for not giving in. To ignore this holiday is in effect to say, I hate my loved ones. And to be clear, I love my wife, just not, just not Valentine's Day. Okay, Those two things are not connected. Much in the same way, I love Jesus and his birth, just not certain parts of Christmas. Okay, so you always have to get the story right. A lot of fake news out there. Um, but now that I've just reinforced the regretful reputation, let me try and salvage it just a bit. Okay, in honor of this month, in honor of what those in marketing have so convinced us of that is so important, I've chosen for us to walk through a love story. Okay, enter the book of Ruth. Okay, enter the book of Ruth. Ruth is like God's version of a Hallmark movie, yet it's actually good and actually has a point and a compelling story and good characters. So I guess you could add Hallmark to the list, right? So to be serious for a moment, Ruth is indeed a love story. Okay, it is, but it's more than that, so much more than that. Before this is a story about a couple or any human character, it's a story about God. And we are not wrong to enjoy the story, to somewhat be enamored by the characters in the story. But there is depth, depth that goes well beyond the immediate story and well beyond the characters, a depth that unfortunately many of us may miss if we just sort of glance through it during, um, you know, our Bible reading plan or whatever. There's a story behind the story, so to speak, that we need to be able to see, hence a series in the book of Ruth. Because in the background of this is another story, one that shows how God does indeed move in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. It's a story for people who wonder at times where God is and what God is doing. That's the background story. It's a story for people who question where God is in the midst of tragedy. It's a story for people that wonder Whether it's worthwhile to live a life of integrity in the midst of a culture that doesn't really care about it, in the midst of difficulty, is it worth living a life of integrity? It's also a story that for people who can't imagine that anything good would come out of anything ordinary or out of ordinary people who walk through ordinary circumstances. So in the midst of telling us a story about seemingly ordinary characters Apparently having a fairy tale ending behind and above all of that is an epic tale of redemption. You may say, if this is an epic love story, then behind it and above it is an epic tale of redemption. A tale of God's redemption. A tale of how God brings his people from despair to delight, from hurt to hope. As one author said, well, through Ruth, we see how God works through sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph. Which, if, if, if you know anything of Christianity, you, you, you start to connect the dots pretty quickly on how this story tells the grand story, sort of in microcosm form. So welcome to the book of Ruth. Our plan, Lord willing, is to spend all of February for Sundays, uh, counting today. Uh, our It works pretty well. Our English Bibles have Ruth broken into four chapters, so we'll be covering a chapter per week. 
And even though it's broken into chapters, I think it's better that we break it up into acts. Okay, it's more like a drama or a play. So this is not like an epistle, which we just covered a letter in the New Testament. This is a this is dramatic history in the Old Testament. Okay, this is drama. So you have four acts in this drama. And if I have my language correct or my terminology correct, okay, within an act, you have what's called a scene. Okay, acts contains they contain scenes. Okay, if you're a theater or literary major in here, you can correct me afterwards and I'll I'll correct that next week. But we're going to go acts and scenes. Okay, so just run with that for now. So we're in act one and we're going to cover five scenes and really it breaks better into four. Uh, but I don't know what how you break up scenes, so I don't know what the language is for that. So I'm just making five and really just two out of one so that we can point out some unique things that happen in one particular uh, scene. OK, and I'll just give these scenes to you as we go. Uh, you'll hear me say them. They'll be on the screens. I know Ryan probably spoiled you the last few weeks. <laughs> he gave us an outline that doesn't even require notes. Might as well just hand out the manuscript. So I'm not as kind. Uh, or as polished or as prepared as he is. So I like to see people uh, writing. So five scenes and then we'll close with five exhortations, Lord willing, uh, that we'll draw out of these scenes or out of the book uh, generally as a whole. Hopefully the exhortations, they'll be general. So we'll kind of carry those through uh, this entire journey and then hopefully they'll help us to better understand uh, what we're unpacking in this uh, story. There's just so much more here than we might be able uh, to cover in one sermon or really four. Okay, act one, scene one, we have a tragic background. A tragic background. Um, uh, actually, Ryan mentioned this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, but with the youth on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about uh, tools, uh, tools that we need to have in our toolbox uh, to be able to study God's word. So imagine we got a toolbox tools in it that we bring out to help us to understand uh, God's word. I'm going to try and highlight a couple of those and, and point those out and see if the youth are paying attention. OK, but one of those tools is the context tool. Context. So every verse in the Bible is in is in its own context. We often butcher the Bible. Okay, believers and unbelievers alike butcher the Bible because they pull things out of context. You can make just about any verse mean anything you want if you take it out of context. Well, Ruth has an important context and one that's not hidden from us. Okay, verse one, right out of the gate. Here's the context tool just signals it for you in the days when the judges ruled. Significant point right there. You don't even have to get the full verse. And then there's another tool that you can pull out of the toolbox right here and apply. And it's called what we call with the youth, the Bible timeline tool. OK, Hudson, what, what part of the Bible are we in right now? The Old Testament. I don't want you to give the wrong answer and think that I'm not a good teacher. We're in the Old Testament. OK, so put you on the spot there. Good job. <laughs> OK. It's good. All right. So I, I put people on the spot all the time. So just imagine this. Very simple. All right. There is a cross above the baptistry behind me. OK. It's always good to find the cross in biblical history. Like where is Jesus? Right. And because we turn our Bibles the way you're looking at it, we turn our Bibles from this way to this way. So I'll go that way. So Old Testament over here on this side. This over here is what is called the what? There we go. It's good. All right. That's this is layup stuff, right? All right. So we're standing right now in this church in this day. We're in the New Testament. All right. We're on this side of the cross. Ruth is over here in the Old Testament. That seems really simple, but there's there's a lot of differences between standing over here and standing over here. Okay, I wisely gave David Burnett chapter three in a couple weeks. Read ahead if you know why that was wise. You're going to need to know a lot of stuff over here that doesn't really apply over here to be able to understand chapter three and not think it's just weird and creepy. All right. So you're going to need you just got to understand as we go through this, some of this stuff, there's a lot of Old Testament context to it. And you got to know in the Bible timeline, where are you at? You're in the Old Testament. All right. So there's different laws and stipulations and rules and all of that in place. So. That's a big picture thing. Just just carry it with you. So what's significant about the days of the judges? What do we know about that time period? Well, a lot. Right. You can flip back your Bible. If it's like mine, I don't even have to flip back a page. Judges, Ruth. Okay, we have a whole book called Judges. So on a scale of one to ten, with one 
being the story is the most depressing and sad and dark and heavy that it could possibly be. And 10 being the most exciting and happy and joy filled that it can be. Where does judges fall? It's, yeah, two. We'll go two. That's fine. It's like it's it's a one or two. It's way over there. OK, you may be to see you may you can flip back one page or like me in the Bible or in my Bible. You can see the very last. Uh, you, you can kind of get the context of Judges, the very last verse of the book. Okay, the book ends in this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is a slogan to be celebrated in modern day in the West. We'll just say the West in general. But that was anything but a slogan to be celebrated in Old Testament history. So think about it. You end the book of Genesis with God's people in Egypt. They end up in slavery in Exodus. Okay, they're brought out of Egypt toward the promised land. You get to the book of Joshua. He leads them into the promised land. They are established there. They settle in. Things are going pretty well. Then Joshua dies and it says one generation passes and basically they forget everything the Lord has done. And then it's a downward spiral after that. Everything goes south. And what Judges outlines is this cycle, this seemingly endless cycle. Okay, the people are engrossed in sin. Bad things happen. They cry out to God for help. He helps through a judge. Okay, he sends a judge to help. And then they're rescued and they do it over again, over and over again. Just It just keeps repeating itself. It's very depressing. So the very last verse of Judges may work on a T-shirt in our day, but it was anything but happy and joy-filled and something you want to celebrate in Scripture. So that's the time period we're in. Unlike the tale of two cities where it said it was the worst of times, it was the best of times, or I think I said that backwards. It's basically just the worst of times. That's all it is. It is the worst of times. What we have in the book of Ruth is a camera. So if you imagine you're looking at judges and you're looking at the worst of times from like a big picture view, 30,000 foot view, what you have in Ruth is the camera Focuses in, narrows down on one particular family. And they're going to, the author is going to show us what was it like, what is God doing in one particular family in a short period of time in the midst of what's going on in the book of Judges. That's what we have in Ruth. Okay, we have another contextual clue in verse 1. It says there was a famine in the land. Basically no food. Land is dried up. I doubt anyone in here has ever experienced a famine, but maybe maybe so. Story starts in Bethlehem, as the text says, which is ironic. The the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So this is there's no food in the grocery store. It's that bad. There's no food in the house of bread. The presence of a famine likely means and we can't know this for sure, but it likely means that they are experiencing God's judgment at this time. The people have rebelled against God Doing everything in their own way, what is right in their own eyes, and God is judging them. We see that. We see a famine used in that way throughout the Old Testament. But the famine here, no matter how we understand it, is a catalyst for the story to begin. Okay, so far we don't know anything about the characters. We just know that a man of Bethlehem, who lived during the time of Judges, in the midst of a famine, decides, according to the text, that he's going to sojourn. In a country called Moab, okay, a nearby country, not that far away, is another important clue right there. So he's going to leave the promised land, he's going to leave Bethlehem, and he's going to sojourn to Moab. What do we know about Moab? Okay, we'll go real simple. Is it a good place or a bad place to go if you're an Israelite? Good or bad? Bad. Okay, that's good. Okay, Moabite. Or Moab, inhabited by the Moabites, doesn't have a good track record. Not exactly the Canaanites, but not far from it. So the Moabites are a product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. If you, how many people got a Bible reading plan started that when it that, that started in Genesis and you're going through the Bible right now? How many people have read this story? Okay, how the Moabites came about? Yeah, it's not a good one. It's not pretty. So not a good relationship between the Moabites and the people of God. They even warred against God's people at one point. They worship a false God. Okay. All right. Now, now we get to some characters. So it's a man of Bethlehem, his wife and his two sons, who verse two finally introduces to us. So the man was Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and his two sons, Mehlon and Chilion. All right. Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. All right. 
And in Kilion, some people say Kilion. I might go back and forth because I've heard it a bunch of different ways this week. So just bear with me. All right. We didn't talk about this with the youth, but I would put a name tool in the toolbox, by the way. So youth, we missed that when we're moving on to another study. Everybody else, put the name tool in your toolbox. Names in the Bible, they're important. They mean stuff. Names in our day don't necessarily mean a whole lot. In the Bible, they mean some. Elimelech's name means my God is king, which we see the irony in that. We'll talk about that. Naomi means sweet or pleasant. And their two sons have unfortunate names, okay? Mahlon and Kilion can mean sick and dying. How about that for naming your kids? Some believe this is more of the author's kind of rhetorical skill coming out, just sort of forecasting, foreshadowing what's about to happen. Maybe these are more like nicknames, not their actual names. But that, that, that's what we have, okay? This tragic background of this, of the time in the judges, chaotic period, this family that's living in the midst of a famine decides to leave, sojourn in this land they probably shouldn't be in. And it just doesn't get any better. So, tragic background, a chaotic and moral time. Alright. Next scene, see how it goes from here. Next scene, we see a heartbreaking sojourn. A heartbreaking sojourn. The road to Moab turns out to be the road to nowhere. Heartbreaking background turns in, or the tragic background turns into heartbreaking sojourn. But let me, let me pause before we get into this because I just want to highlight this. It just stuck out to me all week. I never thought about it. Like Ruth, I think Ruth is a pretty popular story. We hear about it all the time. And if something is popular, we automatically sort of elevate the characters in it. Like these are, these are like, these are great people. These are like celebrities because we've heard about it. But what kept Hit me in study all week is these are really ordinary people. This is an ordinary family. And I think if we'll if we'll sort of lodge that in our minds and hearts, it'll kind of draw us into the story a little bit more, help us to maybe pay a little bit more attention. So there's an unimaginable tragedy here. OK, unimaginable tragedy. But there's a lot of ordinariness to what's going on. Think about it like this. If you read Exodus Nothing there seems ordinary. Nothing in Exodus seems ordinary at all. Plagues, parting the Red Sea, clouds of fire, mountains shaking, food from heaven, water from rocks. The list just keeps going and going. Not an ordinary book. Ruth doesn't contain any of that. Not one outward miracle, okay, recorded in the book of Ruth. So if Exodus is a story of God's miraculous providence through the extraordinary then Ruth is the story of God's meticulous providence through the ordinary. Okay, we'll talk about that providence language here in a minute, so just hold on to that. The gist is, the reason I point that out is, most of us live in Ruth, not in Exodus. Our lives exist in Ruth, not in Exodus. So what we are getting here is a glimpse of the hidden work of God during the worst of times in the lives of the ordinary. Okay, the absence of the miraculous does not equal the absence of God. God most definitely works through the ordinary, ordinary people in ordinary circumstances. Okay, this is not some special celebrity, super elite, wealthy family. This is just some family from Bethlehem, a family that doesn't seem to make very good decisions. Anybody else get in that category? You're just some family that doesn't always make good decisions. All right. Unpause for that. Just wanted to point that out. So we go to Moab and we're there for 10 years, the text tells us. Okay, this isn't Elimelech uh, go, hearing that Costco in Moab has food, so he's going to go buy it there and then we'll bring it back home. This is him leaving the land of promise and going to what you could call the land of compromise and putting down some roots. We're going to be there for 10 years. This may and probably does on the surface sound like a pretty good pragmatic decision. No food here, food there, got to feed my family, I'm going to go there. Hard to fault a man for trying to feed his family. Unless, unless that decision goes against what God has said. Unless that decision means turning your back on God. That is a good, pragmatic, and maybe wise decision unless God says otherwise. You can put a lot of things under that heading. So it may make sense on a pragmatic level, does not on a spiritual level. So famine in the land would have called for at least two things. Repentance, 
if there had been sin against God and trust in the provision of God. It would have called for two things. It should not involve fleeing from the promised land and therefore from the presence of God. Not in the sense of God's not everywhere, but in the sense of God had chosen to dwell in a place, in a particular place, among a particular people. And they are leaving the presence of God to go somewhere else. God says, I dwell here and you are my people and this marks you out. And they have left that. The father has taken his family out of the church for 10 years. Away from spiritual nourishment for 10 years. That's not going to go well. Limelech's name may mean my God is king, but he's not living like it. And we're unable to make one-to-one connections here. The author doesn't allow us, but it, it doesn't go well in the land of Moab. We have death followed by compromise, followed by barrenness, followed by more death. It's where you really start to, to feel for Naomi. This character starts to, starts to come into play. You start to feel her pain. Her husband dies. But even then, she still has her sons. But then, the best decisions are not made after that. The sons take Moabite wives. If you know anything of the Old Testament, you know this would be advised against. They were not listed like the Canaanites would be for God's people not to marry them. But they, the Moabites did worship a false god. Okay, so that would fall somewhere else. So you're not to marry somebody who worships a false god. Kind of same category. Then, as if it couldn't get worse, the sons die. And based on the last part of chapter 5, the wives had been barren. They had produced no offspring. No kids had come. So you end up with Naomi, a widowed Israelite, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. By the time we get to verse 5, that's who we have left. She left with a family, and now it's just her and her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And by the way, useless fact of the day, can't help but share it. Oprah's original name was Orpah. Did you know that? Oprah was Orpah. Nobody could pronounce it, apparently, so she changed it to Oprah. All right? And it's interesting because Orpah means back of the neck. It's kind of like turning away and seeing somebody's back. We're going to see Orpah walk away. Oprah would talk about her faith as a child, as growing up. And where is she now? So it's kind of, won't read too much into that. But there, free fact about Oprah today. Um, it, it's, it's hard to get much worse uh, than things are here. Driven from a homeland by famine, cruelly robbed of loved ones by death, left without an heir. She is in a patriarchal society with no man, no son, meaning no protection, no provision, and with no heir to continue her name. Nothing short of a ten-year nightmare that summed up in three quick verses as they get into Moab. Calling this sojourn heartbreaking is probably an understatement. But that's scene two. Now we turn to scene three. Start to see some rays of light here. Next, we see a a promising return, promising return. So um, really, for the rest of the chapter, the word return summarizes the remainder of what's going to happen. So it appears remainder uh, uh, return appears over and over and over again through the rest of the chapter in some form. I don't have time to show you all these, but you may read back through and look for the word return or turn back or different versions of that. It's just over and almost every verse has that in it. Maybe highlight it next time you go through it. So this chapter in many ways is about returning. And this point, when you get to verse 6, is a turning point in the story. And not just a geographical one, but a spiritual one. So according to verse 6, Naomi arose and with her daughters-in-law decided to return to Bethlehem. Why? Because somehow Naomi had heard that the Lord had visited his people. That food had been provided. We can maybe assume there's been repentance in the land. We know the cycle of judges. Okay, okay, They sin, bad things happen, they beg, they repent, good things happen. So we can assume that the people have turned back to God. He's delivered them. He's provided for them. And I'm foreshadowing where this is all headed by calling it a promising return. But it's promising just based on this news that Naomi has heard and decided to return to the land. It's because she has heard of the Lord's favor. Why return? Because the Lord's shown favor to his people. That's a microcosm of the whole book. In the middle of darkness, there is hope. 
In the middle of hopelessness, there is hope. There's just this ray of hope. God's faithfulness and provision is made evident. You think about how this news, I don't know how she received the news. The author doesn't tell us that. How did she, maybe somebody else was sojourning land and they'd come in after this. Uh, I have no idea. But just think about how this news would have landed on Naomi. She's a stranger in a foreign land, widowed, aging, no family meant no food, no protection, no significance in a family-dominated culture. All hope is seemingly lost and suddenly, suddenly word of God's favor has returned to his people. I think the end of the chapter shows us it was not easy for her to go back, but nonetheless, the decision held out hope because God had visited his people. You might say it's time for the prodigal daughter to go back home. So the journey begins, daughter, daughter's in-law in tow. And then suddenly we get a pause in the journey at some point along the way. Verse 7 just says they set out on the journey. Then verse 8, we get a stop. Don't know how far they made it, but they stopped. And for the first time, people began to speak in the story. Not a single word from any character up to this point. Now we're about to get a lot of talking. And really, dialogue will dominate the rest of this book. So we move to the next scene. Okay, This is really the scene within the scene that I didn't have terminology for. So scene 3 would really take us up to verse 18, but we want to pause and highlight this stop in the journey. So during the promising return, next we see an astonishing confession. An astonishing confession. So in the middle of the journey, you get this repeated urging from Naomi to Orpah and Ruth. Almost sounds like anti-evangelism. She wants them to go back to their homeland, to their families, to find a husband, to go back to their gods, little g. She even gives a lengthy explanation about how Hey, I'm not going to have any more sons. I'm old. So even if, even if I did get married and did have sons, are you going to wait that long to have another husband? Just a little background on why she's saying that, because maybe you're thinking, well, couldn't they just find somebody else when they got to uh, Bethlehem? Well, in Deuteronomy, God set up a way for widows in these situations to be provided for. If the husband died, then a brother, okay, closest relative there was to take responsibility for caring for the widow. So the picture here, according to Naomi, is there's nobody else. You're you're done. You come back with me. It's widowhood and childlessness. No family. I have nothing. Now, there's a question of why does she wait to get somewhere along on the journey before she has this speech? Why start the journey and then stop and have this? Maybe she's testing their loyalty. They obviously love and care for her. She says as much. Verse 8, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. So maybe she's testing them. They have been kind to Naomi. She's even praying. She prays for the Lord to be kind to them. Even in Moab, if you go back, may the Lord be kind to you. It's an emotional scene. Lots of crying, weeping. Eventually, Orpah returns. Okay, Naomi again, uh, names are again, uh, again on Orpah, the names are interesting. I mentioned that back of neck. So she's just returning and going. So her name kind of signals that. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Orpah is really not painted in a bad light. But when you have Ruth kind of come after this and start to talk, then Orpah looks kind of bad. But really, Orpah is not painted in a bad light. We don't have any idea what happened to her. Okay, if you're thinking of a drama here, Orpah just exits stage right and we never see her again. And then all of the sudden, this figure we don't expect, Ruth, if we don't know the story, she takes center stage and the spotlight sort of falls on her. All right. So suddenly her feet, first speaking part becomes like some of the most important words in all of the Bible and particularly in the book of Ruth. So Naomi attempts to persuade Ruth again. She even tries to point to Orpah. Look, she's walking away. That doesn't work. And what we get from Ruth is one of the more impactful statements of commitment we'll ever hear. Let's read it again. Verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I've never been to a wedding where that was used. Anybody heard that used in a wedding? I think, oh, got one in the back. Okay. It's odd. Like, that's a daughter-in-law talking to her mother-in-law. But 
I guess it works. But I just heard people talking about that being used in weddings and I'd never heard it. It just seems odd. So great statement of commitment. So it's hard to overstate the depth of commitment there. Okay, I'm going to die where you die. Whatever the Lord has for you, I'm, I'm stuck with you. I'm taking whatever the Lord gives to you. You just got to think about that for a moment. She's leaving. She That decision right there is to leave any family she might have had back in Moab. Okay, anything that's familiar, her religion, her God, any form of security that might have come from going back to her family. And she's committing to an older, childless widow, which in essence, as far as she knows at that moment, she is committing to being a widow herself and being childless for the rest of her life. She doesn't know any better than that at at that point, but that's what she's committing to. And more or less, she's going to live in enemy territory. She's going to be an ethnic and social outcast, a Moabite widow who is childless in the land of Israel. She is aptly described in verse 22 as they come back in. We'll see in a minute. She is Ruth, the Moabite. Now, as one commentator pointed out, and I think used appropriate language, there is a biblical thunderclap. Right in the middle of the speech by Ruth. She wasn't just committing to Naomi. She committed to Naomi's God. Your God, my God. Orpah returned to her God, little g. Ruth, on the contrary, turned to the God, big G. She invokes the covenant name of the Lord there. There's so much being signaled with that confession than we know. A Gentile has walked into the fold. There's a reason Matthew puts Ruth in the genealogy of Jesus when you open up the New Testament. Now, I don't know about you. I I, I struggled with understanding this part or just being amazed by the fact, by, by the circumstances under which Naomi makes her commitment to God. Look how bitter the circumstances are to use. I mean, uh, that Ruth commits to God. Look how bitter the circumstances are, according to Naomi. You know, some people criticize Naomi while others praise her because she's this character is kind of hard to figure out. I'm not sure what to do with her yet. Maybe by the time we get done, we'll know what to do with her. But it strikes me that Ruth made this confession amidst these circumstances. You think God, Yahweh, would be the last person she would want to commit to given all that's happened and all that she's witnessed like why would I want their God look at all of this I don't know maybe just maybe Naomi's actually done a good job of telling Ruth about her God I don't know we're not told but this confession amidst these circumstances is telling one writer summarized it this way she took on the uncertain future of a bitter widow in a land where she knew no one, enjoyed few legal rights, and, given the traditional Moabite-Israelite rivalry, faced possible ethnic prejudice. What we have here is faith that sees beyond bitter, present bitter setbacks, and even beyond potential future pain. Orpah did the sensible and understandable thing. Ruth did the extraordinary and unexpected thing. I don't know about you. You read the Bible and you're automatically the hero, right? You read chapter one, like, I'm Ruth. That's right. I'm Ruth. I got to the end of the week studying this, and I'm like, I just want to be Orpah. Like, they don't say anything bad about me. I'm probably Elimelech. My God is king, but I don't live like it. Ruth heard the cost of discipleship speech from Naomi, and she chose to follow. Her confession sounds similar to what Paul said to those in Thessalonica. You have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is both a horizontal and a vertical commitment here. Horizontally to Naomi, vertically to God. Each of these commitments, if you know the story of redemption, will literally be used to alter the course of history. So in the grand scheme of things, this confession is much more than astounding. But that's scene four. Scene five, end of act one. Finally, we have a bitter homecoming, a bitter homecoming. Um, You would hope that Naomi would rejoice at what Ruth says. But 
if you were paying attention as we read, she basically gets the cold shoulder. She heard that she was determined and said no more, like silence the rest of the trip. Not praise God that you have committed your life. Silence. Then we get the entrance into Bethlehem. And I'm not sure the uh, the population of Bethlehem at this time, but it has a small town feel based on this story. So I'm from Jemison, from Chilton County. This feels like, you know, somebody returning home after 10 years of, you know, we've heard stories about their life, not real sure what's going on. And then they walk back in and suddenly everybody's talking about it. Verse 19, the whole town was stirred there. And it says they were stirred because of them, because of Naomi and Ruth. Maybe they were stirred because Naomi left with a husband and two sons, and now she comes back with nothing but a Moabite daughter-in-law. You grew up in a small town, you get it. Like, everybody's business is everybody's business, and that's what's going on here. Everybody gets stirred up about everything. And it's either the fact that Naomi is alone, or the tragedy she has experienced. One of those two has causes them to even ask the question, is this Naomi? Maybe the physical toll has just wrecked her body. And they don't, is, is, is that Naomi? It's been a hard ten years. Or is it just, is that Naomi because nobody's with her and there's some girl walking with her? Seems somewhat unrecognizable. Is this Naomi, the women said. I thought about diving into why were the women highlighted there? Not sure why the women in the town were highlighted. Decided to leave that one alone. God put that there. We won't speculate. If you figure it out, you let me know. Um, Naomi's bitterness that has surfaced just sort of boils over now. Verse 10, don't call me by that name. Don't call me sweet. Take call me Mara, which means bitter. Go back in the Old Testament. Again, if you're walking through your Bible reading plan, you may have gotten to okay this word being used before. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Okay, She generally explains why she's bitter. I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. He has brought calamity on me. You have to feel, you have to feel for Ruth right here. Not saying a word. Okay. Just, just committed her undying loyalty to Naomi and Naomi, Naomi walks into town. And it's like Ruth's not even there. I got nothing. Call me bitter. All we get is this line from the, narrator to ensure that we do not forget where Ruth is from. Okay, Ruth the Moabite. And if that's not clear, it says they returned from Moab. It wants to make sure that you understand that a Moabite just walked back into Bethlehem. Don't miss that. And then the chapter ends with what initiated the journey home in the first place. Chapter ends with a bright spot again. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That line is the transition into the next chapter or the next act. So we'll just have to wait and see on that. In terms of this homecoming, it's a bitter one, but it's an instructive one. Okay, There's much to learn from Naomi, more than we have time for. But as one pastor said, well, Naomi may not see the situation fully or interpret it correctly, but she knows rightly that God is involved in everything that has happened. She is expressing, as one commentator put it, faith cloaked in bitterness. Faith cloaked in bitterness. So leaving Bethlehem in the first place was a bad decision, one that went against God. But we don't really know Naomi's part in that. But we do know, based on her words, she takes no part in what's been happening to her. There is no acknowledgement from her end of any human responsibility. Even if that's missing and wrongly missing, maybe she should be taking responsibility. There is at least right acknowledgement of God's involvement. She doesn't attribute any of this to chance or bad luck. She references God as El Shaddai, Almighty. Okay, That's a title for God that emphasizes so many things. His omnipotence, his power, his sovereign rule over all things. And then after that, she also references his covenant name. Anytime you see that word Lord in all caps in your Bible, that's Yahweh. A name that points to his faithfulness, his faithful love to his people. So he is El Shaddai, Yahweh. He's the one. He's been involved in all of this. He has all power and he is faithful. She's saying more than it seems she knows at the moment. She's bitter, but she acknowledges more than most bitter people. 
There's at least a correct theology or a deep, robust theology, even if her assessment and understanding of the situation is lacking. So she may not see the literal ray of hope walking beside her or the good that awaits her, but the narrator, the writer, helps us to see it. She may be ignoring or simply not seeing God's kindness being shown to her through Ruth and through the barley harvest. But the writer is setting us up to see it. He's setting us up to see that a bitter homecoming will soon be turned sweet. One day, Naomi is going to be able to embrace that name again. For now, we'll just have to anticipate how that will unfold. Or, as you have the ability to do, you can read ahead. And you can see how it will unfold. For now, exhortations. All right, so curtain closes on Act 1. We'll open it back up on Act 2. Exhortations, five of them, to hopefully drive some of these points home, set up some of the stuff that we're going to look at. These will be brief because I've used all my time and we're going to run out. Exhortation number one, trust in the providence of God. Trust in the providence of God. So I used that word earlier, said stick with me. So divine providence. That is the governance of God by which he, so with wisdom and love, his infinite wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. So the doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things, and that is ultimately a good thing. As Paul says in Romans, as is evident in Ruth, God ultimately works all things for good, even when those things hurt. So Ruth is a story that highlights and broadcasts, again, the meticulous providence of God in the ordinariness of life. Okay, we see his providence displayed through the difficult yet ordinary lives of a certain family here. So I, I have a clue and I have some knowledge of what's going on with some of you. Some of you I don't even know. So I don't know what's going on with everybody in this room. You may be like mountaintop moment or valley moment. Don't know where you are. Okay. But here's what I know to be true. God is at work wherever you are. Whether it's extremely good right now or the worst it's ever been, God is wherever you are. As the song goes, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling Face. Now, make no, make no mistake, providence is sometimes hard, sometimes very, very hard. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Hebrews 12 says the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Jesus made clear to us over and over again in this Lord, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If you think. That anybody, believer or unbeliever, is shielded from hardship. You have not read this. So don't let anybody lie to you in that way. There's the question of whether or not Naomi's affliction and that of her family was owing to personal sin. We can't specifically answer that regardless. Regardless, though, don't ever think that the sin of your past means there's no hope for your future. The providential God, I think, according to this story and so many others, even works through the waywardness of his people. Think about judges, the cycle of judges. He's working through that to bring his people back. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, well, just, you know, go on sinning that grace may abound. I think Paul tackled that argument. He said, by no means, that's just dumb. Okay, don't do that. But don't doubt God. Don't doubt that he won't lead you out of it and redeem you from it. Okay, our foolishness, maybe put it this way, our foolishness doesn't set aside God's providence. Our foolishness doesn't set aside God's providence, no matter what we're walking through. Okay. Things that we've brought upon ourselves are things that are just part of living in this world. Okay, God is with us. God is there. So trust the providence of God amidst that trust. Heed this next exhortation next. Follow the word of God. Again, we aren't able to make one-to-one connections here about the decisions made or the sins committed and the results and the circumstances. But we can say this. All difficulty in life is owing to the presence of and the effect of sin on this world. 
And then we can say some difficulty in this life is owing to the presence of and the sin in our own hearts. Okay? We can say both of those things. And we oftentimes are not privy to the knowledge to be able to differentiate between the two. In the Old Testament, it seems to be a little more clear, okay? Based on the stipulations and the rules and how things work, okay? God was pretty quick to say, you didn't do it right, here's how it's going. It's not good, return to me, all of that. New Testament, lines are a little blurrier, okay? Speak, just, the caution is be careful about making one-to-one connections. Oh, you're suffering, how'd you sin? The disciples tried to do that in the New Testament. It's not owing to a specific sin. Okay, even with that qualification, we know the decisions in this story were not good. They went against God. So the implication, I think, is follow the word of God. But even be careful with that. So you read this story and you go, okay, it didn't follow the word. It didn't go well, so follow the word and it will go well. That's, that's not how this works either. either. Jesus didn't promise that. What I'm trying to say and what the Bible says, the best place to be found is faithful. The most security, and I use security instead of safety, the most security is found in faithfulness. The most security is found in faithfulness to God's word. So the implied exhortation from the life of Elimelech, if we'll just take him, is not to follow the way that you think is best, but to follow the way God has said is best, even if that way is marked with difficulty. It was going to be difficult to stay in Bethlehem, but that's what God had said to do. So trust in the providence of God, follow the word of God. Third, repent of sin against God. Okay, if you turn against God, return to God, repent of sin against God. God's grace covers sin Again, sin in your past or in your present doesn't dispel hope for the future. Naomi gets news of God's grace toward his people and she returns. She had no idea what was in store. Ruth turns from everything that she knows to Naomi's God, to the living God, and she has no idea what the future holds. If you sin, don't run from God. Return to God. Why? Because according to the book of Ruth and the rest of the Bible, God is kind. Like. Didn't really see that one coming. God is kind. Okay, you need to couple that with the next exhortation. Repent of sin against God as you next remember the kindness of God. So Naomi introduces us to one of the key theological terms and themes of this book, which is kindness. She prays that God would be kind to her daughters-in-law. They dealt kindly with her. Mark Dever, who wrote a chapter on Ruth, said that he thinks the foundation of the book of Ruth is kindness and mercy. Orpah and Ruth are kind. Naomi prays for kindness. We're going to see Boaz, who is also kind. But as much as human kindness may exist here, it pales in comparison to the God, the kindness of the God being displayed and the kindness of God being foreshadowed. This is what the rest of the book will lay out for us. So just go ahead and spoil the story. Now, spoil is kind of a bad word. I'm not really spoiling it. Do you know what Ruth is ultimately about? I'm going to give you another chance. What is Ruth ultimately about? Sunday school answer. Jesus. There we go. Good. I think it was Grady who said that. Somebody told, said that on Wednesday night. Answered the question incorrectly. It's Jesus. You know how I know that? Yeah, we've talked about some simple things today. Because the Bible tells me so. Keep the Sunday school thing going. Jesus says it's about him. In the New Testament, Jesus says, it's all about me. But it's also not hard to find Jesus in Ruth. It can be really difficult as you read through the Bible in certain sections. You go, where is Jesus in Deuteronomy? I cannot find Jesus amidst all the laws and the rules. But it's not hard to find Jesus here. So think about it. Ruth is the answer to how God is going to redeem his people out of the mess that they created in Judges. Ruth's immediate answer to that, to how God is going to do that, how he's going to redeem and restore his wayward people is somebody named David. So Ruth is King David's great grandmother. So you get to the very end of the book, you're going to see David there. Okay, that's how the book ends. So Ruth gets us from Judges to David. So Ruth is the answer. How are we going to get them out of this mess? Where's the, how are we going to eventually get to a restoration of the people? Ruth steps in and says, this is how. This is how. David's going to come from this family's line. 
And then you just go a step further to find Jesus. Who does David foreshadow? Who is he a type of? Jesus. It's a really simple connection. All you got to do, again, I mentioned earlier, the genealogy of, that Matthew puts. Matthew chapter 1. You see Ruth and David. And then you get to Jesus. Ruth is a story of God's kindness to one family, but it's ultimately a story of God's kindness to all of us. How God, through Christ, pulled us out of the darkness, out of the mess, and redeemed us, okay? Brought us back, restored us, okay? How we were empty and now we are full. It's just a microcosm of that big story. This exhortation is the preacher, preach the gospel to yourself exhortation. So in your sin, return to God and remember his kindness. In your suffering, cling to God and remember his kindness. Now, if you're here or if you hear this sermon later on and if you would say, I, I don't I don't know God, I've not followed God I don't know Jesus or I'm confused this would this would be I think what we would all pray for the person that doesn't know Jesus doesn't know God isn't following Jesus we would pray that you would know God's kindness like we are people that have experienced kindness even if we don't think about it like that we would want you to know that the God who is sovereign over your circumstances has in Christ Jesus and his life, death and resurrection been kind to you. And I would say this, we're talking about his providence. You are here or you are listening to this because God is kind. Because he's in control. would love to talk with you more about that if you're willing. For now, final exhortation. Way over time. Okay. Don't just remember the kindness, but finally extend the kindness of God. Don't just remember the kindness of God, but extend the kindness of God. We'll save most of this for another day because we're out of time. Ruth is an example of how God's kindness is sort of channeled through people to us, to everyone, even those we might consider outsiders. So Ruth was an outsider. God's kindness made its way to her. And then Ruth, as an outsider, shows God's kindness to others. Um, we'll see this more as, as Ruth develops and as other characters come in. But for now, we don't just trust the providence of God and follow the word of God and remember the kindness of God and keep it to ourselves. Again, conduits, channels of God's, God's kindness to others. So kindness, it's a fruit of the Spirit. So go to Galatians. All right, this is part of the job description for every single one of us who would claim the name of Christ. Amidst the array of Christian virtues, please do not leave kindness out of the equation. Kindness is one of the best ways to clothe yourself with the very character of God. Truth, the truth that we, we have can wound, okay? But our attitude doesn't have to be unkind as we do it. So I pray that we'll learn much of the book of Ruth. Lord willing, through this epic display of God's kindness, we'll become more pronounced conduits of God's kindness. See, I, I would pray, maybe you pray this with me, I would pray that our spouses and our kids and our fellow church members and our unbelieving neighbors and our unbelieving family members and our unbelieving co-workers, I pray that even the nations, as maybe a small result of us walking through this book, I pray that all of those folks would at some moment go, why are those people so kind? Wouldn't that be a great question? Like somebody comes back in here and they just wanted to walk in and go, I'm just trying to figure out why these people are kind. Because they don't have any reason to be. May the Lord do that and abundantly more by his spirit working through his word in his people. Now, let me be kind and in the sermon because um, we get to observe this meal um, and just let me go ahead and invite those up that are going to be serving. I, I can't uh, I admitted to Brown when I walked in, forgot it was the first Sunday of the month, um, put a little extra in the sermon, forgot the Lord's Supper. So that's bad. It's on me. I confess it. But. Some transitions are really, really easy. Can you think of a better representation of the kindness of God than this meal? The body of Christ poured out, like the body of Christ broken for our sins, his blood poured out to wash us 
clean. It just kind of high. It shows you the the level of God's kindness in a depiction of what it took to save us. Shows us what God was willing to go to to express his kindness to his wayward people. So this meal is reserved for followers of Jesus. Again, if you don't fall in that category, we're grateful that you're here. I hope you do have questions. We'd love to talk with you after. But when it comes to this meal, we pray you just let these elements pass by as they're distributed. Uh, Believers, we're going to distribute both elements. And so once those get distributed to everybody, then I'll lead us to uh, partake. So I, I just pray that we do this as these are going around. Just take a moment and pause and reflect upon the kindness that God has shown you in Christ Jesus. Okay, and then pray, God, can I? How can I be a better conduit of this kindness to those around me? All right. So that's the prayer. So let me pray for us. We'll distribute this and I'll leave this take. Father, we're thankful for the blood and the body of Jesus Christ and the kindness expressed to us through it. We pray that you would lead us now to reflect and remember well. Expose in our hearts anything that would cause us to be unworthy. May we confess it now and would we partake with joy. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.